Does the conflict in Russia and Ukraine have any relevance to Bible prophecy? Does Vladimir Putin have any justification for invading this country? How should we think about world events like this when we aren't directly involved? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. Now, my original plan for today's subject, it was going to be a continuation of the Ezekiel series that we've been doing for several months now, and I had done my homework on this, I had the lesson ready, I had poured many hours into the, the mystery of the 430 days that were mentioned in Ezekiel 4. I had the whole lesson written up, and then just as I was about to record it on Monday, something happened that gave me a major setback. Um, the day before that, on Sunday, I was finished teaching my Sunday school class. I was unplugging my computer from the monitor in the classroom, and then I dropped my MacBook Pro. And I only dropped it a few feet. I thought it wouldn't even hurt anything. Unfortunately, that was enough to mess everything up on it. And um, it had been a few weeks since I had backed up my computer. So I lost everything that I had been working on lately. <laughs> so thankfully, I had backups of a lot of my files on an external hard drive. Um, I Everything I've taught since entering mystery, ministry like almost a decade ago was preserved, except for what I had done for the past few weeks, including that study on the 430 days of Ezekiel 4. So, um, you know, if I had lost like everything I'd ever done, that would have been devastating. But thankfully, I'm a little bit OCD about backing my stuff up. So I have about 98 or 99% of all the work I've done in ministry still saved. And I have it backed up, double backed up now in, in the cloud. I'm learning a little bit more about how to keep my stuff, how to keep something like this from happening again. So I'm thankful for to have most of it. But on the downside, I'm going to have to restart that lesson that I had typed up on Ezekiel chapter four. And so it might be two weeks before I can get back into that now. Uh, now, I say all that, you know, that was a mini personal tragedy for me. I, I'm only I'm only sharing it just so I can tell you like why we aren't back in Ezekiel for today's lesson, like I had said. Um, also, just let that be a reminder to you, you know, always keep your important files backed up on something because you do never know when tragedy could strike. Even, even a tragedy, as small as dropping your computer. But I only say that to kind of explain why my lessons are a little bit behind. Um, as far as in the grand scheme of things, there's a lot bigger events going on right now throughout the world that are a lot more important than like <laughs> me having to buy a new computer. And what I want to talk about today are those bigger events. So like as I, as I was typing these words for this lesson, my phone would just keep lighting up with the next headline about Russia and Ukraine. The Russian military is basically attempting to take over another country right now. And Ukraine is defending itself. But, you know, unless um, unless God or another country intervenes, the situation looks pretty grim for Ukraine. They're doing a good job fighting and holding their ground for right now. But, I mean, we're still in the early stages. I'm sure this thing could still have a long way to go um, that Russia could keep trying things for quite a while. So this has been a significant thing going on this week, uh, this past few weeks, really, 
the greatest military conflict in the world since World War II. Uh, and one of the biggest questions from all this is whether this could lead to a World War III. And we're all faced with questions about ourselves right now in our own country. Like, should we just stand by and watch? Or should we try to intervene? Uh, Does Putin intend to stop with Ukraine if he gets that? If if he does, could he try to conquer more territory? If other nations banded together to stop him, is there a possibility that maybe China steps in also, but maybe to help Russia? And then that could start another world war. And if we stand by and do nothing... If, if, you know, Russia takes Ukraine and we don't do anything, could China try to take um, a similar tactic with the country of Taiwan? So these are significant questions that just don't have easy answers. And that's why we need to be praying for the wisdom of our president and of our of all leaders of the world right now. You know, even if you don't like them very much, even if they are not godly men, the Bible does tell us to be in prayer for those in authority. And right now they need our prayers more than ever. So here's what I want to do for today's lesson. I want to look first at a story in the book of Habakkuk. Uh, And of course, I'm going to tie this to current events, but I'm I'm not going to do that until first I just want to explain what's going on in in Habakkuk and the situation that he was looking at. And then we'll relate that book to some current events and what this Ukraine situation means to you and me. And toward the end, I do also want to discuss where Russia does fit in to Bible prophecy. So, you know, you might want to grab a notebook for today's lesson if you like to take notes. Um, It'd probably be handy for you to have a map of Eastern Europe, maybe even the Middle East that you could be looking over because that's going to help you understand some of the things we're talking about. But first, what I'd say, go into your Bible, unstick those pages, you know, where where Habakkuk sits, unstick those pages from there. because This is one of the least read books in the entire Bible. And, And it's a shame because I feel like, you know, for the past five years, It's been one of the most relevant books to my prayer life. So I I think everyone should learn the basics of what Habakkuk is teaching us. It's only three chapters. And if you haven't been in there before, um, go dig deep in your Bible, find this itty bitty book, and then let's talk about what it says to our lives. So again, Habakkuk, it's only three chapters. We're only going to look at two of them today. And as usual, I'm going to use the the ESV version of the Bible. Um, Habakkuk's one of those prophets who warned of the Babylonian captivity that was coming soon if Israel did not repent. And so if you've been following along with our Ezekiel lessons, then uh, Ezekiel himself is living through that captivity. And maybe if the people had just listened to Habakkuk, then the book of Ezekiel never would have needed to happen. But unfortunately, you know, it did. So we're learning from it. Uh, When I first entered ministry... One of my first goals personally was just to know the purpose of every book of the Bible. I wanted to be able to like differentiate them in my mind so that I knew what made Isaiah different from Jeremiah and Jeremiah different from Lamentations and so forth. I wanted to know what made each book unique. And that was a very fun journey for me. Um, the hardest part, it, the hardest part is learning about the minor prophets and what made each one of them different. Because, <laughs> you know, as you probably know, there are 12 of them. And they can very easily just kind of run together in your head. Uh, You know, when you learn the books of the Bible, it usually has like a song uh, whenever you're a kid. Um, The minor prophets are the hardest ones to keep straight in that song. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like like the LMNOP of Bible books. Um, They just like mush together and it can be hard to separate them. So really the best way 
to learn what makes what makes each of the minor prophets different from each other is just to study them one at a time and put some space in between each of these studies and just study them one at a time and it'll take a while but after you do that you will see the like unique beauty of each one of the minor prophets and so habakkuk is one of the minor prophets and his book is unique because it's mostly just a conversation between habakkuk and god all right and habakkuk is very open here in his questioning of god we're just basically reading a prayer uh, from habakkuk to god but god's very open also in responding back so this is a little bit different from some of the other prophets that you know generally they just like deliver messages from god to the people um, habakkuk is not one of those prophets who goes out in public and just yells at everybody this book is a short little book it's just a conversation that he's having with god and the conversation um, it's about the Babylonian army that is coming right now to conquer Israel. And so as we've, you know, as we've established in the Ezekiel study, Israel had been rebelling against God, against God's word. God tells Habakkuk that he's going to send the Babylonians to punish Israel for their disobedience. So let's start reading. And it starts here with Habakkuk crying out to God. And, and he's saying, like, God, why won't you punish Israel for its disobedience. So Habakkuk 1, we'll start at verse 2. How long, O Lord, shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So Habakkuk is just tired of looking around at Israel's evil behavior and their rebellion toward God and just getting away with it. And Habakkuk is like, God, why won't you do something about this? And so God comes in at verse 5. And says, I will. God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity dignity go forth from themselves. The Babylonians, they are the Chaldeans. So God's saying, don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm going to send the Babylonians to conquer Israel. They are going to be my fist of judgment, just like Israel used to be many years ago against the Canaanites. Well, Habakkuk has some problems with that. <laughs> and he, he thinks it's theologically unethical. Um, he wants Israel to be punished, but I think Habakkuk probably just had someone else in mind. He wanted to see Israel collapse internally or maybe you know be punished by a nation that was more morally righteous than Israel. But instead, God picked one of the most evil nations in the world to conquer Israel. And Habakkuk finds that really confusing because he thinks, you know, (laughs) that might not send the right message to the Israelites. Um, He wants the Israelites to see the error of their ways. And he's concerned that if the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, if they are the ones who will mete out justice, that Israel won't realize that this is a judgment of God. So he says, hey, God, hey, I know we're not great, but we're at least better than Babylon, right? <laughs> so so why would you send a nation more evil than we are to judge us? That's what he's asking God. So he asks this in verses 12 through 17. Let me just read uh, verse 12 here. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. 
Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So again, Habakkuk has some questions, and, and we probably would too. We'd say, you know, hey, God, I know you need some judgment against Israel, sure. But why would you punish us before you punished Babylon? Instead, you want to use Babylon to punish us. It just doesn't make sense. You know, from Habakkuk's point of view, Israel deserves what it has coming. It just doesn't make sense to Habakkuk to use Babylon to do it when Babylon deserves judgment even more. So God replies, and and now we're going to skip to chapter 2. He replies in chapter 2, we're going to read verses 8 through 10, and and God is responding to this question, and God speaks here as if he's speaking to Babylon, okay? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. So again, Habakkuk's question is about why God would let Babylon punish Israel when Babylon is so much worse than Israel. And God says that Babylon is going to be punished too. Their turn is coming. Don't worry, Habakkuk. God is not ignoring Babylon's sins. Babylon will fall too. It's just that their time is coming later. But Israel's time is now. So we get a glimpse here of how God is operating up in heaven. God can influence or direct one nation to attack another nation. Um, You know, from our point of view, it looks like it's just all about kings and presidents and prime ministers and they're having cabinet meetings deciding what to do. That, From our point of view... You know, some people have good intentions. Some people have bad intentions. Some people are praying to know what's best. Others are just doing what they want. From God's point of view, he is the one directing all of these actions. When one country is going to war against another, God is probably bringing bringing it about because of his own sovereign purposes. So it might be to punish one nation. It might be for an entirely different reason. But these global events, they are not random. The leaders of the countries, they're not in as much control as they think they are. God is the one who's bringing things about in his timing and for his purposes. And by the way, I'm saying all this. I'm not suggesting that this means every war is justified or that human beings can be left off the hook for their decisions just because God has a purpose for it. I'm not saying that. God might be using like one king's, one president's. He might be using one of their jealousy or greed he, he might be using that to do something that God wants done. Okay, maybe moving one country's boundary. Maybe moving one city into another nation's jurisdiction. It does not mean that that king is off the hook for being greedy. God's going to deal with him for his greed. But I'm saying perhaps God is using that to accomplish some kind of greater purpose. Okay? And the example here in the Bible is Nebuchadnezzar. He, you know, he's going to attack Israel and carry the people away, and carry their property away, and he's going to be a murderous tyrant. He turns Daniel into a eunuch. He throws Daniel's friends into a fiery furnace. So he is not a good guy. But all of that was accomplishing a greater purpose of God wanting to punish Israel. Okay, see? So doesn't mean Nebuchadnezzar could just be let off the hook for all the bad things he did, but God had a greater purpose in mind why God was allowing that to happen. 
All right. And we could go through so many examples of this through the Bible. I would get really carried away with it if I started doing it. Let me give you, I'm just going to give you a couple of verses. I'm going to try not to get carried away on this. Okay. Uh, but just to help us kind of understand how God operates. In Daniel 2, Daniel said, this is verses 20 and 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So just remember, nobody who's in a position of authority is there unless God put him there. So when a president gets elected, even in America, that you didn't like, I got some news for you. God did put him there. Doesn't necessarily mean that that president was the best man to lead the country. It means that God has plans for the country and for the world. And God can accomplish those plans better with one leader there than with another leader there. Okay. So God is sovereign. I'm not saying your vote doesn't matter. I think you should vote. But I'm saying at the end of the day, nobody accidentally gets elected president. Nobody like accidentally becomes the king. God is the one who orchestrates these things for some kind of greater purpose. God removes kings and sets up kings. All right, here's another verse. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I feel like you just need to hear that again. Okay, I'm going to read that again. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Let me just read that one more time. It's so powerful. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, listen, if you are not familiar with how God operates in in regards to man's free will, this is going to be really confusing for you. But I'm just telling you right now what the Bible says. God is in control of who is in control. So if Israel needs punished and there's a king with ideas of conquest in his heart, well, God could direct that king to conquer Israel. And again, this does not let the king off the hook for his decisions. I'm just saying God, I like to say it like this, God is bigger than sin. God can use someone else's sinful decision to accomplish something. Like when Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Okay, that was bad that his brothers did that. And Joseph went through a lot of of hard situations. But if you read to the end of the story, it brought about all kinds of blessings, significant blessings far down the road for Joseph's family. At the end of the story, in Genesis chapter 50, the last chapter of Genesis, he says to his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So God could use a sinful, bad situation and bring some good about through it or accomplish a greater purpose through it. It's not saying that God endorses the sin. It's saying that God uses that sinful person to do something that God is wanting to get done because God is bigger than sin. Um, We are supposed to do right, okay? God calls everyone to a life of purity and obedience to his word, but the fact remains, most people are not going to obey, and God knows that. So God plans around that, even with you and me, okay? Even as Christians, we do not always obey, but God could use even our wrong decisions to accomplish his plans. Go look at Romans 8, 28. If you're confused by this, okay, don't feel bad because Habakkuk was too. Habakkuk found this really hard to wrap his mind around. So don't feel bad. But also I'd say this, 
you do need to get a grasp of it at some point, all right? Habakkuk was written 2,500 years ago. So yes, that book is mind-blowing, but also it's old news. I mean, it's relevant for today, but this is something that God told us a long time ago. God directs nations and kings and uses them for his purposes in his timing. And you've got to come to an awareness of that if you want to understand what's going on in the world around you today. And by the way, you know, I know when we start talking about sovereignty and free will, that these are questions that Christians have wrestled with for centuries. All right. I'm personally, I'm not a Calvinist. Um, I know I've talked a lot about God's sovereignty, but I'm not a Calvinist. I think God gives us free will. It's just not as much free will as we think we have. Um, Or I'd say it like this. I just don't think we realize how much our decisions are influenced by spiritual forces, good spiritual forces and bad ones. We are oblivious to a lot of the ways that they influence us. All right, so that's your that's your Bible theology lesson for today. You can go look at those verses again if you need to. Let's talk about some current events now. Let's talk about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Let's and let's take some of that theology I just shared and we'll apply it to this modern situation. So if you don't mind, allow me to lay out the situation. I'm typing this, um, my notes here, I started typing them on Thursday, February 24th, okay? At that point, we were about 24 hours into the Ukraine invasion by Russia. This episode will release on Monday, so now it's February 28th, all right? And um, I'm sure some new information has come out by the time that this airs on Monday or by the time you're listening to this, wherever this is in the future. I don't think it's going to change anything really as far as what I'm sharing today. I'm just telling you where I'm at on this. A lot of this stuff that that I'm talking about today, it's stuff I'm learning as I research it because, um, you know, as I've said before, cross-references is not a geopolitical expert. So a lot of this stuff I'm learning for the first time as I'm sharing it with you. Um, you know, one thing I've learned today is how young that Russia actually is as an, as, as an independent country, Okay. Uh, and I learned this because I heard that um, I heard in the news that like day one of the invasion, Russia invaded and took the Chernobyl site. And, you know, if you know anything about Chernobyl, that was the nuclear disaster in the 1980s. And I was confused when I heard that because I thought Chernobyl was already in Russia. Um, so I was like, what's the deal with it being in Ukraine? So I looked it up and it turns out back in the 1980s and for a long time before that, Ukraine was part of the USSR. And as you probably know, the USSR, that was a socialist communist country throughout the 1900s. And then it finally fell apart in, I think it was 1989 that it fell apart. So, you know, if you listened to my two-parter that I just did a few weeks back, socialism versus the Bible, that's on this podcast. um, You know, you'll understand why it fell apart, but Ukraine was actually a part of that. And so after the USSR dissolved, Rather than remaining under Russia's control, the Ukrainian people, um, which were Russian people, but they said they wanted to break away and be their own nation. And they said that back in January of 1990. And the separation process took about two years. But ever since then, they have been recognized as a sovereign state ever since. Okay, And they are a very young country, which I was just a little bit surprised to learn. Um, (laughs) I found out this past weekend, if you ask a teenager's opinion... Uh, They'll say it's old because I'm the same age as Ukraine and they call me old. But I think if you ask most people, they'd say that Ukraine and and me, by the way, um, that we're on the young side. All right. So Ukraine had some struggles early on for the first 10 years of its existence. It suffered 
really massive inflation. That was basically through the whole 1990s. Um, I think I even read they had to switch to another form of currency to get out of that mess. But anyway, at the end of the 1990s, the economy stabilized. They've become quite wealthy since then. They are an oil-rich nation. They cover a lot of land area. Um, as far as European nations, it's one of the largest European nations by like square miles. And I haven't double-checked all these facts. I've, I've heard a few things this past week that Ukraine is very valuable valuable among world nations due to the ores that can be mined, as well as the coal, and that it's very high among nations in exports of eggs and cheese and wheat, bee products, rye, potatoes, clay, titanium. It has the world's fourth largest natural gas pipeline. So it's very high in natural resources. That's one reason that it's very valuable. And Russia also had a hard time when Ukraine broke away. I think I read that they lost 20% of their GDP when Ukraine left. And now that's a really hard hit. Um, so if you were to listen to a lot of American news sources talking about this whole thing, they'll tell you that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, that he's just after Ukraine because of the oil pipelines and he wants their money and their resources. And that is a part of it. That is not the whole story. There's a lot more to it than actually the, than just the economic side of things. And we're going to get into that today too. So I need to mention one more thing about Ukraine. And this might seem insensitive to mention right now due to everything going on in that country, but I do feel like it's relevant to mention this um, as far as my, my main point for today. Ukraine is known as one of the most corrupt nations in Europe. Um, actually, one of the most corrupt nations in the whole world. Everything about Ukrainian politics is sketchy. A lot of politicians, even like from America, they often have really sketchy dealings with Ukraine. And don't take my word for it. Um, that This is what people have been saying for years. It was ranked the third most corrupt nation in the world back in 2012 by Ernst & Young. And then they ranked it the ninth most corrupt nation in the world in 2017. So I guess that's progress. <laughs> but, you know, there's like nearly 200 nations in the world. So it's still in the top 5% of the most corrupt countries. In 2015, um, the Guardian, that's a European publication. They ran a story with this headline. Welcome to Ukraine, the most corrupt nation in Europe. So it's it's just basically a very lawless country. It's ruled by politicians. By, by, it's ruled by an oligarchy. The courts and the law enforcement, they just do whatever the politicians say. Um, if the politicians don't have an opinion on something, the judges and investigators, they can just be bribed. Lots of money is embezzled by the ruling class for personal expenditures. It's basically the Chicago of Europe. So, like I said, it's a young country. Um, it has been steadily improving from what I've read. It's still It's been getting better, although it still has a long way to go. So, why is Putin attacking it right now? B not trying to obscure the fact, by the way, that Russia itself is a very corrupt <laughs> and evil nation. Why is Putin attacking it now? Well, one reason is that as Ukraine becomes more democratic and less corrupt, it's getting closer to being able to join NATO. Or it was. Um, that might not happen now, you know, depending on how things go. NATO is an alliance of about 30 nations, and the alliance is built on the principle that if you attack one of them, they will all declare war on you. So you have to be accepted into the alliance by being um, pro-democracy, anti-communism. This was meant to be a bulwark against the communist countries that were uh, against them trying to conquer just anyone in Europe, countries like Russia. 
Um, the United States and Canada, they're part of NATO. So if you are in NATO, basically nobody is going to be declaring war on you because then they would be declaring war on about 30 other countries too. Um, some people have posited that this week's events could lead to a World War III. Uh, that is a possibility. We'll talk about that. But I'm going to tell you, Putin surely does not want that. He just wants Ukraine. Okay. And Ukraine has just been trying to get itself to a point that it can join NATO. If that were to happen, well, then Putin knows he would never be able to get his hands on it because um, they'd be part of NATO. So he'd be fighting 30 countries and not just one of them. So that's part of why he launched this attack. He's afraid the clock is going to run out on his opportunity. Uh, Other reasons that Putin wants Ukraine, I'll give you three big reasons that you might not hear about. Uh, Well, one of them you will hear about. That's the NATO thing. But then here's a second one. Um, Ukraine is not just trying to be independent of Russia. It's also trying to separate itself from its Russian heritage. Now, to us in the West, this makes sense. You know, Ukraine is just trying to be its own nation. It's not under Russian control, so it doesn't want to just be a puppet of Russia. And that's understandable. Um, However, as Ukraine seeks more and more to be like the other European nations and hopefully to join NATO someday, it's also trying to distance itself from any association with Russia. And Putin finds that, like in a very personal, emotional way, he finds that infuriating because he is a, he loves Russia. He loves, he longs for the days of the USSR. He's very proud of his USSR background. So whenever he sees what, uh, what, what you might call Ukrainian nationalism, it really ticks him off. It, you know, it would be kind of like this. Imagine your kid moves out of the house at 18 and he wants to start his own life. And a lot of us say, well, hey, that's understandable. You know, that's expected, right? Young adults want their independence. So you would probably accept that as a parent. But then just imagine that the kid not only wants to leave home, but he wants to change his name. (laughs) He wants to pretend he doesn't even know who you are. Okay, that would be a bit more hurtful and probably upset you. So in a similar way, Putin feels kind of betrayed by the Ukrainians who are not just trying to break away, but who want to completely disassociate from Russia. He hates Ukrainian nationalism. He will probably imprison all of the Ukrainian politicians and just install his own. Another aspect of this story that's very important to Putin is the religious aspect, which you've probably heard nothing about this whole time. Um, But this is actually very important to understanding Vladimir Putin uh, and understanding that they are putting economic sanctions and all kinds of stuff like that on Russia to try to stop them right now. But this is not just about economics uh, to Putin. This is about the principle of a matter. Uh, This is about um, defending what he sees as Christian ethics. Now, let me say this for, you know, right up front. I don't believe for a minute that Putin is a legitimate Christian. Okay. I think he's an evil, murderous thug. Now he claims to be a Christian because that is kind of the dominant, uh, religion guiding Russia. Um, as far as like, when you look at all the religions that are present in Russia, Christianity is obviously the most influential. Obviously it's not chiefly influential in their, (laughs) in the lives of their politicians, but kind of like America, they are very uh, in favor of Christianity. Now, they don't follow a Protestant Christianity like we do over here. They follow something that's called the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, so Putin claims to be Christian, 
And that's really because he loves Russia. He loves his Russian heritage. He loves his Russian history. And the Russian Orthodox Church is a powerful entity in Russian life. In Orthodoxy, if you don't know much about it, it's very similar to Catholicism. I know they have their differences, but like as a Protestant, we look at Orthodoxy and it, to us, it looks very much like Catholicism. Sometimes Putin will do things that are pro-Christianity in Russia, and they'll, they will go in favor of Christian morals. And sometimes he'll even get cheered on by the Christians in America because they see that and they think he's acting in favor of Christianity. So I just want to point out, he's, he's probably doing that because he loves Russia, not because he loves Jesus. Okay, if he loved Jesus, he wouldn't be killing journalists and rigging elections in his favor. Okay, Putin is not a Jesus follower. So when Ukraine broke away from Russia politically, what they also did, they abandoned the Russian Orthodoxy. They have now what's called the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Okay, Putin says that Ukrainian Orthodoxy should not exist, that the only Orthodox Church should be the Russian one. So for Putin, this this is a... Um, this is a religious and even spiritual battle, even though he's probably not a very spiritual guy himself. But like I, like I said, he's trying to defend his Russian heritage. And the Orthodox Church is just very important to people in Russia. So this is probably a little bit difficult for us to understand over in America, even though religion is important here too. Um, but we would look at Putin. We'd say, if he's not really saved, why is the purity of the Christian church such a motivating factor for him? I think it makes sense if we explain it this way. Um, even though Putin and much of Russia is not Christian in the way that we would like them to be, they are governed by ethics that are going to be in alignment with a lot of Christian principles. Okay, For example, in Russia, it is against the law to promote non-traditional sexual lifestyles in the media, Okay, meaning like on TV, radio, books, so on. You are not allowed to destigmatize or normalize like LGBT stuff on their television screens. Putin literally signed that into law in 2013. So they don't have, you know, freedom of speech over in Russia. They don't have so-called LGBT rights in Russia. They don't tolerate that kind of immorality on their TV. All right. And they can point to the Bible and make a case for why they do that, why they ban it. So like I said, Putin, he might not be a Christian in the sense that we would consider someone a Christian, but he is guided by an ethic that has a lot of principles that are in alignment with the Bible. So he looks over at us, at the Western nations, nations like America, okay, like the UK, like France, and so on. And he looks at us and he sees a decadence and a decline in our morality that he wants to shield himself from, okay? He sees it creeping, he sees it creeping into Ukraine, as Ukraine seeks to join NATO and be a more westernized country, Putin doesn't want that. Because if Ukraine becomes an immoral country like the rest of the West, then that immorality is going to be right on Russia's doorstep. So Putin kind of feels pressured to invade Ukraine, almost in a sense of self-preservation for Russia, and even in a sense of trying to save Ukraine from going down this path. So and he would actually like to have Ukraine there to be somewhat Russian and to act as a buffer between the evil Western morals and the Russian mainland. And if Ukraine joins NATO and the West, then that possibility of a buffer is going to be forever gone. It's going to close that door to him. It might even creep into Russia next, all this pro-LGBT stuff. And he doesn't want that, okay? So this is, to him, it's a self-preservation for Russia 
and Russia's morals and Russia's heritage if you look at it from Putin's perspective. And he believes that he can do this right now with no consequence. And he might be totally right, okay? Because right now the progressivism and the wokeism that's infecting Western countries, all of that stuff has made us weaker, not stronger, okay? This idea that we all just need to hold hands and embrace peace and disarm ourselves and cut military spending and that patriotism is nationalism, you know, that that whole idea, that mindset, that doesn't work if the bad countries like Russia and China, if they don't follow the same philosophy, then they're just going to get a strategic advantage over us militarily. So Putin believes that if he does this right now, that he might save Ukraine and um, that he can take Ukraine and that no one's going to lift a finger to stop him. And frankly, he might be right. You know, day by day, we're going to watch this play out and and see if he is correct on that. He's betting on that the West is not going to get involved in this fight. He's just going to be able to do what he wants with Ukraine, and we're just going to stand by and watch. This is a rational calculation from his perspective. Okay, for him, this is a low-risk, high-reward scenario. I mean, there is a risk if the West goes to war against him, but then he can just pull back and just kind of try to return things to normal. For him, this is a low-risk, high-reward. So why wouldn't he go for it? Okay, and listen, if you are, <laughs> if you're American. You are probably uh, uh, surrounded right now with a lot of dumb takes on the Russia and Ukraine situation from American media. I've learned so much about this conflict just by looking at what foreign correspondents are saying. I would encourage you to, go, to like seek those out instead of looking at what the American media is saying. <laughs> the, the dumbest takes that I've seen about this, they've been on the news media and the social media. Like When I woke up the other day, uh, The Atlantic, they had a new piece out. Um, the first thing I saw when I opened my eyes was this piece from The Atlantic, and it was about why, why would Putin attack a country unprovoked? And their conclusion was that he's doing it because he hates democracy. But we have to look at it from Putin's perspective. Like when they say unprovoked from Putin's perspectives, <laughs> from Putin's perspective, he's not unprovoked. OK, he and Russia have been very offended by Ukraine's behavior. So he feels justified in what he's doing. And the American media is just way oversimplifying the situation. They're saying stuff like that he's doing this because of white supremacy. They're acting like the former president, Donald Trump, had something to do with it. And, you know, they're, they're, the American media is talking about whether the Ukrainians hiding out in basements and subways, whether they might spread COVID to each other. I mean, that's seriously what the American media is talking about. And, and if you if try to look at it like I was doing earlier, if you try to explain the situation from Vladimir Putin's point of view, you are accused of being pro-Putin or pro-Russia. So they, they can't like think about this in a uh, sophisticated or mature. They can't think of this in a mature way in their mind. Um, they the, the American media just does not pay enough attention to world events, stuff going on in other parts of the world. So when a conflict like this breaks out, they do not understand any of the history behind it. And like I said, I'm learning a lot of this for the first time too. And I'm realizing it's just a, a more complicated situation than what you are probably going to get if you turn on mainstream media sources here in America. Hey, by the way, uh, tune into my other podcast if if you like um, following along with current events. And I try I'm going to try to tie some of this stuff in in my other podcast too. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. Go tune into that if you want to hear some more uh, of like what I've kind of been learning about. As I study this Ukraine and Russia situation, I'm not going to talk about prophecy on that program, but just looking at it from a media point of view, 
how the media is covering this thing because they are getting a lot of stuff wrong. So if you want to hear about that, tune into my other podcast and I'll go into some more details on that. And listen, I'm not making any excuses for Putin's actions. Okay, I'm not I'm not trying to do that today. I'm just trying to understand what's going on. And Americans right now, they are so irreligious. They're so obsessed with race and sexuality and COVID and Donald Trump. They don't understand why someone would care enough to invade another country um, for religious reasons. They don't understand why Russians would be offended by Ukraine joining NATO or shrugging off its Russian heritage. So um, I'm not trying to make excuses for for why Russia is doing this. I think it's wrong what they're doing. I hope I'm clear about that. It's totally wrong, totally unjustified, but it's not unprovoked from their point of view. And if you say that, if you say that, you're not understanding the situation. All right. uh, Before we go today, what I also want to do, I just want to suggest what God might be up to at the moment with Russia and Ukraine and Bible prophecy. Okay. And I'm not claiming that I know what God is up to. I I just want to look at, you know, what kind of stuff happens in the Bible. And I want to offer some possibilities that are based on a biblical precedent. Okay. And by the way, Biblical precedent would demonstrate first and foremost that we can't know with 100% certainty why anything is happening, you know, unless a biblical prophet or a modern day prophet who was legitimate actually told us what what was happening. Otherwise, we can't know with 100% certainty why things are happening the way that they are. So biblical precedent shows us that God is deciding things on kind of a cosmic or global scale in the spiritual realm and that we just can't understand them from our ground level view. So I'm gonna throw out some possibilities here. And as I throw these out, do not take these as an endorsement or excuse for Putin's actions, okay? If you think that, you're not truly listening to me. Uh, like I said before, we gotta be mature in how we look at at, at uh, world events. We gotta be spiritually mature, okay? So what I'm about to say next is not to endorse Vladimir Putin. I'm just suggesting some possibilities for what's going on in a spiritual sense and how God might be using Putin in a way. All right. And before I get into this first possibility here, I'm just going to warn you, some people are going to see this as insensitive to the situation that Ukraine is facing. And I just want to say I'm not trying to be insensitive. I'm just trying to cover all my bases in a theological sense. So um, when I've been watching the news reports for the past few days of the Ukrainian soldiers fighting to the death in Kiev, which is the capital of Ukraine, I mean, when I watch that, it literally churns my stomach to see what Russia is doing. Okay, and and I admire the Ukrainians courage and bravery because I can I look at that and I can imagine a lot of people would just be abandoning the city and running away. So when I see that, you know, my heart goes out to them. I just want to say I'm not trying to hate on Ukraine with this episode. I'm just trying to cover my bases by looking at every possibility here. So here is one potentiality that I would just throw out? Could Ukraine be suffering a judgment of God because of its widespread corruption? All right. And I say that because as we have gone over already, Ukraine is known for being one of the world's most corrupt nations. And this does not mean that I'm saying every citizen in Ukraine who's suffering right now is just a bad person getting what they deserve. I'm not saying that. I don't think that whatsoever. Uh, But I'm just pointing out when you have an evil government, the, the court system's corrupt, the, the law enforcement's corrupt, the politicians are corrupt, it's corrupt top to bottom. When you have that, then the good, innocent people are going to suffer, okay? And by all accounts, Ukraine has a evil government. 
Um, sorry to say, the elites in Ukraine, they have enriched themselves for years on the dime of just ordinary citizens. And they, they've done that by taking bribes from, from leaders around the world. For real, uh, political scandals in America, they just kept leading back to Ukraine. I'm not saying they're all legitimate scandals, but, uh, you know, Ukraine just keeps coming up in a way that other nations don't. And, and I say all that despite the fact that a higher percentage of Ukrainians claim to be Christians than even Americans do. OK, and yet it's it's considered one of the most corrupt nations in the world by several watchdog groups who study and rank these things. All right. So I'm just throwing that out as a possibility. I know people will say <clears throat> will say that it's insensitive to point these things out right now. Cause the, the things that everybody was saying up to five minutes ago. Um, but personally, I have heard about Ukrainian corruption for years. So I'm just saying it's a possibility to me that perhaps God has removed his hand of protection from them due to their bad behavior and is allowing Russia to conquer them. And if that sounds far-fetched to you, all right, if that sounds like something that God would just never do, I encourage you to look again at what God said to Habakkuk, that he can use one wicked nation to punish another wicked nation. And I don't mean that the attacking nation is actually a good nation just because God is using it, as we covered in the Habakkuk discussion. Um, <laughs> I believe, you know, Russia's day of judgment is going to come later. Someday Putin is going to stand before God for the terrible things that he's doing. Uh, but, but there's a possibility that Ukraine is also facing a day of judgment right now. And, and I say that as someone who totally opposes what Russia is doing. Um, when I watched the news reports of Russia bombing the sites in Ukraine, like that first, uh, it was last Wednesday night when I was watching that on the news. I mean, it, I teared up. I went back to, I had to turn off the TV after a little bit. I went back to my toddler son's room and he was sleeping in there. And I just went back there and just started, <laughs> so frankly, I just started weeping. I was listening to him sleep. I thought about the families in Ukraine who were holding their children close and these missile blasts are going off all around them and they're hoping the next one doesn't blow them up. And I've been praying for the people of Ukraine. And I know there are good, innocent Christians there. And my heart breaks when I see reports of people being killed. And I ask God why this is happening. And I, and I know that God has his reasons for allowing it. Uh, and it may be that some of these corrupt Ukrainian politicians, that they may themselves be marched off to Russian prisons in a few months. And they may be getting exactly what they deserve because um, there's a lot of corrupt politicians there. And it may be that there's innocent Ukrainians who are going to suffer for the actions of those corrupt politicians, just like Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah suffered foreign oppression because of the actions of their people and their evil leaders. So um, I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. I know it's a little bit of an anti-Ukraine take, uh, which you're not going to hear right now, um, but I'm just throwing it out there because I'm trying to cover all my bases. Let me give you an alternative one that's much more positive toward Ukraine um, is that even though Ukraine is a hotbed of corruption in Europe, it also is said to have one of the highest Christian populations. Uh, you know, as I've been watching this stuff, I've been so inspired to see just vast swaths of Christians gathering together to pray and praise the Lord, despite the world just crumbling around them. I, I'm even more inspired when I see videos shared from months or years ago of the Christian families worshiping God in that country. I, I know that there's a lot of Christian nonprofits that operate in Ukraine. Um, I've heard it said that Ukraine sends out more missionaries than any other European country. So 
I, I don't know for sure if that's true, but you know, it sounds like despite um, despite even the, all the negativity of the things I was saying before, that Christianity is very important to the Ukrainian culture. And you know, hey, we might say Christianity is important in America, and you know, we send out gospel materials everywhere in the world, and yet we also export the most pornography and the most messed up sexual ethics. And so, you, I'm just saying, you can have a lot of Christians somewhere and still be a messed up nation. And, and perhaps the Holy Spirit is operating the most strongly in a location where the enemy of our souls also has the most influence. Um, so maybe this attack by Russia is an attack by Satan to snuff out Christianity's biggest influence in Europe. Just going to throw out that possibility too. And here's another one that I want to mention, that this might not really be about Ukraine or Russia specifically. Um, it could possibly be the early stages of another world war. You know, God used the last few world wars to position nations for end-time events. He used the aftermath of World War II to recreate the Jewish nation of Israel. And that opened the door, obviously, to a lot of Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Um, it was a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So, you know, I'm not saying, of course, that God endorsed Hitler. I'm saying that God used Hitler's evil, murderous intent. And God used that to set the stage for things that God wanted to do later. He used World War II to bring about the modern state of Israel. It repositioned things on a global scale. And God could be repositioning things again with this conflict. You know, I mean, maybe maybe Russia takes Ukraine and it stops there and this doesn't go anywhere else. Or maybe China sees this as a good time to take Taiwan too. Maybe European nations stand up to Putin. <laughs> maybe America does as well. And then Russia fights back. And maybe China backs Russia. And we have another world war. You know, there's a lot of possibilities right now. Not no, but Nobody knows how this is going to play out, except God. Nobody knows how this is all going to play out. But I believe what the Bible says when it tells us that God directs the hearts of kings, whatever happens next, God is in control. He, he has a purpose. Okay, every once in a while, God likes to shake things up. And it could be for end times reasons. I mean, it could be that the end times are not close and that we're just entering a new phase of human history and God is reshuffling the chessboard for that one. So a lot of possibilities right now. Um, and the, as far as biblical precedent, um, there's various different things that could be going on that we just don't know. All right, one last point I wanna consider today is Ezekiel 38 and 39. This is the prophecy that's referred to as Gog and Magog. This is an event where um, several nations, they create a coalition to attack Israel and they surround the nation of Israel and then God miraculously intervenes to save them. And as far as the timing of the attack, like in regard to other events in Bible prophecy, we don't know exactly when it's gonna happen. It could be right before the tribulation. It could be during. It could have nothing to do with the tribulation. Like, we just don't know. I would assume that it's going to be right around the same time frame as the end times. Um, but that's an assumption, okay? It could happen 100 years before the rapture. Uh, I'm doing right now uh, on this podcast, I'm doing a chapter by chapter, verse by verse study of Ezekiel. And right now we're only in chapter four. I've been a little bit concerned lately. <laughs> by the time we get to Ezekiel 38, that Gog and Magog might have already happened. So that's how potentially close it could be, okay? Um, let me read to you what it says in Ezekiel 38. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, 
and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, I have not studied this as in-depth as I'd like to yet, because like I said, I'm only on Ezekiel 4 in my studies. I mean, once we get to this in the Ezekiel series, I'd really like to go in-depth on it. But but that's a long ways off right now. So what I'm about to say, I'm just going to tell you what most Bible teachers have been saying for decades. Okay, not all of them, but I'd say most of them believe that Gog of the land of Magog is referring there to Russia. And you can find this being taught in Bible prophecy books for a long time, decades, okay? And keep in mind that when Ezekiel wrote this a long, long time ago, like 2,500 years ago, um, Russia was basically nothing on the world scene. In, in, in fact, until about 100 years ago, Russia was just not a noteworthy nation on the world scene. And then today, suddenly it's one of the most major players in the world. So for 2,400 years, Ezekiel's prophecy might have been confusing to people as to why Magog would become this like chief threat in this passage. Um, of course, and yet today you can turn on the TV and you can watch Magog or Russia. You can watch them invade another country. So it's not surprising anymore. We won't read the whole chapter, but I just want you to notice what God says to Gog. Okay. And, and Gog is, he's the spiritual being who has control over the leader of Russia. All right. It's not the, the literal human leader of Russia although he basically directs the human leader of Russia. That's another story for another day and how to explain that. But um, in this, God is speaking to Gog, who's going to control Russia, basically. So God says in verse 4, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords. So God says he's going to do something to draw Russia down to Israel, okay? Just going to jerk his attention there like hooks in his jaws. God's going to do something to jerk Russia's attention down to Israel, which is just a ways south of Russia, okay? There's a few small countries between Russia and Israel. Uh, one of them is Syria. Russia already has a huge presence in Syria, so they're basically right on the border of Israel already, okay? Russia's already down there on Israel's border. And God says, I want to do something to jerk your attention down to Israel and entice you to invade it. All right. Verse eight, after many days, you will be mustered in the latter years. You will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely. All of them, you will advance coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your hordes and many peoples with you. So, the land restored from war that it's talking about here and the people gathered from many other people. That's talking about Israel and the Jews. And undoubtedly here, it's talking about the modern state of Israel. Um, and I didn't read all the verses in here today, but I'll just mention um, it, it also says several Arab countries in the Middle East join in Russia's attack on Israel. So verse 10, thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil scheme. And say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates, to seize spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited, and the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell at the center of the earth. So 
this is what the leader of Russia is going to think, basically. So if Putin is the leader of Russia at the time that this happens, this would be God basically talking to Putin. Okay, God says, you're going to have thoughts in an evil scheme to go down and attack these people and seize their spoil and plunder. All right. And that, no, that's very vague. Like you read that and you're like, what could that be referring to? And that could be any number of things. Um, there's a lot that makes Israel a wealthy nation. One of those things that's quite relevant to, to Russia is oil. Russia cares a lot about being an energy provider. So this is one of those things that makes Russia so rich. And it's one of the reasons that Russia wants Ukraine back. Ukraine has multiple pipelines running through it. It sends oil all over Europe. And so this is why having Ukraine back could be a big payday for Russia, on top of all the other reasons that I already mentioned. Um, Russia is not the strongest economy out there, uh, you know, despite being a major superpower. I heard this week that Russia has a GDP that's equal to the state of Florida. So it's, you know, it's it's a major superpower in the world, but it's not one of the richer ones. Uh, they are. I've heard it said also. Oh, who was it? Um, uh, John McCain, I think said it's a, the, Russia is a gas station with a country attached to it. <laughs> that if they didn't have oil source, then they wouldn't have anything. So again, getting Ukraine back into Russia's economy, that that's a self-preservation move for Putin. All right. So let's say that the West steps in and stops Putin from taking Ukraine. Let's imagine that they actually get a little bit of backbone. Okay. And now Putin is backed into a corner economically. He's not going to be able to expand westward like he wanted. So maybe he redirects his armies to a southern expansion. Let's say he claims Syria as his own. Let's say he attacks Israel. And there's a lot of Arab nations down there who would be on board with that idea because they hate Israel. So they, they won't stop him from taking Israel and all its oil uh, like, you know, like Europe would over Ukraine. Those nations would be happy to see Israel gone. So that's one scenario where I could see this leading to a Gog and Magog type of war. All right, here's another one. Maybe Putin wins Ukraine. Maybe he conquers it back. All right, and in order to punish Russia, maybe the rest of the world starts buying oil from Israel instead of Ukraine, right? You keep hearing about the sanctions, okay? So what if the world basically sanctions Russia's oil and says, hey, Okay, you got that oil in conquest, so we're not going to buy it for you. Then they decide to buy oil from other places, you know, like Israel. Well, then perhaps Putin decides, oh, yeah, well, I'll just take Israel as well. Just another scenario. I mean, it's very it's very possible. It's very exciting to me that we could see Bible prophecy that was written 2,500 years ago, that we could see it play out right before our eyes. And how does the story end? Well, if you want to know that, you need to go read Ezekiel 38 and 39 or just keep watching the news because I wouldn't be surprised if you see it there as well really soon. Um, just keep listening to this podcast because we are journeying through the book of Ezekiel. And in one of these days, maybe after a few years, we'll get to Ezekiel 38 and 39. Only by then, perhaps they won't be future prophecy anymore. By then, they might be history. If you have a question on this chapter, leave a comment, shoot us an email. It's crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. Be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle uh, in the future. Also, if you like current events, go look at our other podcast. It's called Fake News. 
a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. You can find that on iTunes, Spotify, Google. If you want to check that out, check that out as well. Uh, my last episode was called The Authoritarian Movement, and it's also fitting to what we're discussing today. And I'm going to have another one out very soon on that podcast about um, just about what's been going on in Russia and all the propaganda with um, the, the this Russian-Ukraine war that's going on right now. So if you want to learn about what propaganda actually is, most people don't understand what it is. Uh, go check out that other podcast because it's going to be coming out with that episode very soon in the next day or so. Um, next time on this podcast, I hope to have my episode on the 430 days in Ezekiel chapter four ready. Uh, I had it ready, but then I lost it. Like I said, so I'm going to have to start over. I'm not even going to complain about that. <laughs> you know, like I've been saying, God's in control. It's really quite a small problem in the grand scheme of things, but it might be two weeks before I get the next episode out because I've got to catch up, got to catch up now. So Thanks for listening to the Cross References podcast. This has been Luke Taylor, and I usually end the episodes here with a little joke or a callback. I'm not going to do that this time. We've been discussing some really serious events today of things that are going on in the world. And the end times, they might not be kicking off right now. I, I know, they could be hundreds of years away. The stuff we're talking about today could just be the beginnings of international problems that we'll be dealing with for the rest of our lives. I honestly don't know. But here's what the Bible tells us to do. The Bible tells us to always err on the side of the end times being just around the corner, okay? Which means that we should always be ready for Jesus to come back. So take inventory of your life today and don't leave anything unfinished. H have you done all that you can to make your mark on this world if Jesus were to come back three months from now? Well, if not, get to work. Always be ready for the return of Jesus. Every day that goes by, is a day closer to eternity. And today, we need to be more ready than ever. In the meantime, pray for Ukraine. They need that more than ever too.